You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iwoo. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. If you have been paying attention to some of the implications of the redefinition of marriage, if you've been paying attention to some of the challenges facing conservatives and public intellectuals, then you are probably familiar with Dr. Robert P. George. Dr. George is an American legal scholar, political philosopher, and public intellectual who serves as the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University. He is Harvard-educated, Oxford-educated, and is a public intellectual who has written widely uh, on issues of the redefinition of marriage and integrating um, as a integrating his Roman Catholic faith into his public work. Uh, We are grateful to have you today, Dr. George. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be on the show. Now, just to begin by introducing you to our uh, listeners, uh, I said that you are a professor, legal professor, that you serve at Princeton University, and yet you are uh, Roman Catholic and, and right out of the flow of your theology. In fact, you have an MTS from Harvard University, uh, Harvard Divinity School. So perhaps we could start by, simply by asking, how do you work to integrate your Roman Catholic faith into your professional life and work as a public intellectual? I believe that we lead our lives as a whole as Christians, uh, as vocations. Uh, Everything that we do in our personal lives and in our uh, professional lives uh, should be uh, directed toward the kingdom of God, toward building up the kingdom of God, toward cooperating with Jesus uh, in that uh, great enterprise. Uh, So my mission as a scholar, that dimension of my vocation, is the mission of truth-seeking. So my task within my field is to think as carefully as I possibly can about important issues in moral, legal, and political philosophy, to consider the best arguments available on both or all sides uh, of those questions, and then to do my best to arrive at sound judgments, to arrive at the truth, and then to defend it, to present my arguments for believing what I have uh, come to believe. Doing that, of course, in an open-minded way, being willing to entertain criticism, being willing to alter my position uh, if a critic can produce a compelling argument to show that I've been wrong about some factual premise or have committed an error uh, in logic, a logical fallacy, drawn an inference that I shouldn't draw or whatever. Uh, But the bottom line of this is that my vocation, my Christian vocation, includes the scholarly mission of truth-seeking. And so that's what I try to do. So the majority of our listeners are seminary students, uh, pastors, uh, Wesleyan church leaders uh, who are broadly, uh, ev- broadly evangelical in their theology, although not all of our listeners would consider themselves even evangelical. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about your work is that while you do think carefully and write rigorously and critically, that you've also worked to maintain relationships. You recently wrote this on Twitter. Uh, Reasonable people of goodwill disagree about marriage and sexual morality. Can't people acknowledge that fact? Does one side have to say, disagreeing with me makes you a pervert? Or does the other side have to say, disagreeing with me makes you a bigot? Now, to our listeners, who, as I said, are are pastors, spiritual leaders, divinity students, um, how might you say that faith leaders can hold and present their position with conviction 
without making judgments that at least feel like moral judgments to those with whom they disagree. Let me be clear about this, Aaron. I am not arguing against people making moral judgments. I believe we have to make moral judgments. And part of our vocation as Christians is to proclaim moral judgments uh, that are fully in line uh, with what the Bible teaches and uh, what the uh, Christian church has historically uh, proclaimed as part of the saving message of Jesus. So uh, please don't uh, suppose that I'm against making moral judgments. I'm certainly for making moral judgments, but I think those moral judgments need to be backed by arguments. Some of those arguments in some circumstances will appeal to uh, the data of revelation to scripture. Uh, others will be what those of us in philosophy call natural law uh, arguments, uh, arguments relying uh, on the authority of reason itself and not appealing to uh, any other form of authority, including religious uh, authority. My own specialty is in natural law theory. So uh, in my academic work and in much of my public work, what I make are natural law arguments. That is in no way to deprecate or deny the legitimacy uh, or compellingness of uh, appeals to scripture or other uh, religious sources. It's just to say what my particular uh, mission uh, involves, the kind of work that uh, I do. Uh, now, why did I say what I said uh, about uh, the need to treat each other with respect? It's not because we shouldn't make moral judgments. It's because we have to recognize that reasonable people of goodwill can and do disagree on moral questions. That has always been the case. That's not new. The situation of disagreement in our own culture has been, I think, exacerbated very significantly by the rise of secular progressivism. So uh, you, you can't say that what's new is the degree of, uh, of conflict over fundamental moral questions, such as marriage and the sanctity of human life and so forth. But we've always had disagreement among reasonable people of goodwill. So then the question is, what are the norms that should govern? What should we as Christians understand as the norms that should govern our debates with other people who don't share our views when it comes to important moral questions? Those norms, I think, are norms of civility, decency, honoring the other person as a reasonable person, treating the other person with respect, acknowledging his or her dignity as a creature like ourselves, made in the very image and likeness of the divine ruler and creator of the universe. So we should not call them names. We should not denigrate them. Uh, we should not deploy rhetoric that is demeaning toward them, just as I hope they would not do that toward us. Far too often, secular progressives do that to, toward Christians, calling us bigots and haters and the equivalent of racists and so forth and so on. But we mustn't answer injury with injury. Uh, we must treat them with respect and dignity, criticizing their arguments, criticizing their positions, but not demeaning them. It's, it's akin to, uh, this is analogous in this case rather than uh, direct, but it's akin to the Christian understanding of the obligation to love the sinner even while hating the sin. Now here we're not talking about sin consisting in having an incorrect moral view. Uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying is we can analogously to loving the sinner while hating the sin, we can honor and respect someone proclaiming an erroneous uh, position, defending an erroneous position, we can honor and respect that person while criticizing that position, using rational arguments, uh, using our best 
uh, efforts uh, to, to identify the, 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 the false premise, uh, the factual error, the, the logical fallacy that has led the person to an unsound position. Here our model can be the pagan philosopher Socrates. Socrates, as, as, as reported to us by Plato, uh, his great student, Socrates engaged with people who disagreed with him in a respectful and civil way. And he saw that as essential to the process of truth-seeking. Well, that's what we should do, too. What's coming to mind is a quote from uh, Carl Truman, and I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong. But in light of your work toward uh, using logic and reason and data to um, win another to your side or to present a, an alter, alternate point of view, uh, Carl, cultural critic and theologian Carl Truman said this. He said, uh, to win, uh, you don't just need an argument, but an aesthetic. And then he said this, arguments can be true or false, good or bad, but today, who cares? We live in an age where the primary moral binary is between tasteful and distasteful. Control of aesthetics is where the real power to change people lies. In light of your really extensive and thorough and important critical work that has used uh, argument so effectively, what might you say to people who are more in the trade of, of telling stories? Again, not not to do away with argument, but but really pastors are storytellers. They're they're preachers and they want to present um they want to present something the beautiful life in in addition to the true life and that's not to draw an unnecessary distinction between the the true and the beautiful but kind of if those are on a continuum uh leaning a little bit more to the beautiful how might you respond to truman's idea of emphasizing the aesthetic rather than the argument well let me say first uh, that i'm a great admirer of carl truman as a matter of fact carl is a visiting fellow uh, here at Princeton in the James Madison program, which it's my honor to uh, uh, direct and to direct. To direct. Uh, and I just love having uh, Carl here. Uh, he's a powerful uh, voice of uh, sanity, I think, in the culture uh, and of uh, decency as well. So I have enormous respect for uh, Carl. Uh, I don't have exactly the same view he has on this. I certainly agree with him that, to, that it's important that we proclaim uh, the truth by every medium that is available to us, uh, by story, uh, by picture. Uh, there's a place for the novelist. There's a place for the painter. There's a place for the filmmaker. Uh, truth and the truth, including Christian truth, uh, in my own view, actually is all truth is Christian truth. Uh, Christians should affirm all truth, no matter uh, its source, uh, no matter its uh, specific uh, relevance to specific Christian doctrines. Uh, but that's a side point. My point here is that I think we need to proclaim the truth by every medium that's available to us. I worry that Carl is um, underestimating, and I can understand why, underestimating the power of argument. I still think argument is salient with people, with an awful lot of people, probably with most people. And we mustn't excuse our I'm not saying Carl's suggesting this. We mustn't excuse ourselves from making arguments in the public square for the truths that it's our obligation as Christians to uh, proclaim. We need to be out there. Those who have been given the gift of being able to make those kinds of public arguments need to be out there uh, making them. Now, I'd say I understand why 
why Carl might be underestimating the power of argument. Uh, here's why. Uh, Carl has seen, as we've all seen, all have seen very powerful, compelling arguments for the sanctity of human life, for marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife, uh, for religious freedom and the rights of conscience. We've seen them being uh, advanced for 25 and 30 and 40 and 45 and 50 years, and yet so many people seem unmoved by them. So many people of influence and power in the culture and in politics seem unmoved by them. And uh, that can cause us to lose heart. Uh, we become a little depressed at that. But I want to warn against that. Every day I receive email messages or I encounter people when I'm out giving lectures who say to me, you know, uh, uh, my view about this or that or the other thing was really turned around by something you wrote back in 1995 or something that I saw uh, of yours in First Things Magazine, let's say, in 2012. And if I'm running into people who are telling me that they were moved and had their minds changed by arguments that I had put forward, I'm just assuming there have to be people out there I'm not running into, I don't happen to be meeting, or who don't happen to uh, sit down at their computer and, and write me an email uh, who've been influenced by uh, arguments that I've made. And this isn't just me. There are wonderful people uh, like Carl himself and so many, many, many uh, others uh, who are making powerful arguments and I think persuading people and not just persuading people but also uh, supporting people who already believe the truths, let's say, about marriage but find their faith shaken because so many people reject those truths. Uh, so I think we need to be making arguments as well as doing all the other stuff that Carl wants to do, writing novels for those who've been given that gift, making films, uh, uh, producing art, uh, all sorts of different uh, uh, media of art. Uh, let's do it all. This is not an either or question in my view, it's a both and. Yeah. Joining us today is Dr. Robert P. George. Dr. George is the uh, professor of jurisprudence at Princeton University, public and a public intellectual political philosopher. Uh, I'd like to to steer our question uh, or the rest, the remainder of our conversation, um, toward a, a couple of issues that might be um, on the heart of pastors. Uh, the first one is this: um, attached to the most recent. GOP tax bill is a repeal of the Johnson Amendment of 1954, which defines charitable organizations, which our churches are, as ones which do not participate in or intervene in any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for public office. Now, if this amendment is repealed, then churches and pastors would be permitted, permitted to take official and public stands uh, with elections. Uh, do you believe that pastors and spiritual leaders should support this repeal, or what, how should they be cautious about it? Well, uh, the Johnson Amendment, in my view, and I've argued this for a long time, uh, the Johnson Amendment is constitutionally extremely dubious. It's a restriction on free speech. It's a restriction on freedom of religion. Uh, I, I'd like to see the thing repealed. Uh, now, that's a separate question from how pastors should behave in their f official capacity as pastors. But I don't think that they should be prohibited by law from taking political stands, nor should churches be prohibited by law for, uh, for, from uh, taking uh, political stands or have their tax-exempt status conditioned 
uh, on their not taking political stands. The other thing to note, of course, is that many, many churches have defied the Johnson Amendment since the day it was enacted <laughs> with no consequences whatsoever. So it's not enforced. Uh, its sole effect really is to chill uh, the free speech uh, and, uh, and uh, religious uh, uh, freedom of those churches that do or those pastors that do fear that some retaliation from uh, government would uh, uh, would come as a result. But many, many <laughs> pastors and churches don't do that. Before many elections, you'll see what are uh, uh, proposed as prayer rallies that are at the same time political rallies for candidates in churches who are being anointed would be the best word, I think, <laughs> by the pastors and by the churches uh, uh, as their favored uh, candidates. So yeah, the Johnson Amendment's constitutionally dubious. Uh, it should go. But once it does go, then I think pastors need to think very carefully about how they should conduct themselves in their official capacities as pastors. Now, as individual private citizens, of course, they're entitled to their political views. They're entitled to speak their political views. And not only legally entitled, I think morally entitled, and they shouldn't hesitate uh, to do that. What you should do, pastors who are listening from the pulpit, I think is a different matter. I think you need to think very carefully about it. In general, in general, my own advice would be don't use the pulpit to endorse particular candidates. There may be circumstances in which, given the nature of the issues and what's before the people, there could be an exception to that general rule. But I think the general rule should be uh, stay out of specific endorsements from the pulpit uh, of particular candidates. Now, it's a very different situation when we're talking about causes and issues. I think pastors need to speak out when the question is, for example, what will the legal definition of marriage be? Will we protect unborn children? Will the child in the womb finally uh, be accorded the legal protection that that he and she deserve, uh, those kinds of questions, or the question of religious freedom itself. I think those kinds of questions, pastors need to be active in speaking out about, including from the pulpit. It really is such a, an issue requiring of wisdom, not one that maybe needs to be legislated, but the fact that when it is legislated, what you can and cannot say really does away with what wisdom is. And there might be actions that try to push against that that legal requirement as a, an act of prophetic defiance or something like that. And yet when we get down to it, uh, how one shepherds the care of souls within their congregation does take such wisdom. Uh, I had one professor that was uh, very careful in, in how he would trained us, especially with the, the issue of abortion and protection of life in the womb, um, that so often we choose the most heated times to teach on these things when we would be much better served to teach on them in times when there are cooler heads, in times whenever people are more open to an, an argument or, or a picture or a story, rather than in the heat of the moment. Of course, there are times to speak and, and have uh, a firm truth and what we believe is true uh, in the heat of the moment. But if pastors are wise and they are building the case, they're building the belief systems of people whenever things are, are not so heated in the culture around them. Well, I absolutely agree that uh, wisdom is the key here, or what people sometimes call prudence. Um, it takes a kind of judgment. Uh, it's not a question of, of just remaining 
in conformity with a specific norm, but um, but 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 exercising a maturity of judgment, wisdom, or or, or prudence. But I want to say something else. It's very important for pastors not to hide behind the need for wisdom or prudence mm. and be cowardly. Mm. So often pastors are afraid to speak. They're afraid they'll offend people. They're afraid people will walk out of church. They're afraid that people will not put money in the collection plate or will cut or, or stop their uh, giving. And so they go silent on the most important issues for our society and for our people. Uh, the great human rights and common good issues of our day. So often pastors have gone silent on marriage, not wanting to offend people. So pa so often pastors are just completely silent, silent about the life of the precious child in mm. the womb. Let, let's, let's not let cowardice masquerade as prudence or masquerade as, as wisdom. Pastors have to be willing to be martyrs. I mean, pastors have to look at the model of John the Baptist you know, whose criticism of the king on marriage, on the question of marriage, resulted in his losing his uh, life, losing his his head. Now, pastors are unlikely, thank God, in our society today, to be physical martyrs. But they may be called upon by Jesus, by their proclamation, in virtue of their proclamation, to become martyrs in different ways. They might lose their jobs. They might alienate people. People might speak ill of them. The local paper might uh, lambast them in an editorial. But that's what we're called on by our Lord to do, to proclaim the truth boldly. Let's not be cowards. Uh, very interesting that, that you raise those words and so powerfully um, appreciate you sharing uh, those convicting and, and uh, important words with us. Uh, uh, Dr. George, one final question for you today, and it has to relate to uh, maybe tying together um, uh, a contemporary event with some of the values that you've espoused in our podcast today. Um, if Republican nominee for U.S. Senate Roy Moore is elected, what impact do you see this having on the broader pro-life movement? Now, it should be said uh, that this podcast is being recorded Prior to uh, the election for the uh, for the U.S. Senate, in which uh, Roy Moore is running, so these these comments are recorded before the outcome of this election is known. Um, what what impact do you see his potential election having on the pro life movement? Well, let me begin by saying I do not envy the position that the good people of Alabama have been placed in here. Uh, Judge Moore's Democratic opponent is a not only a pro-choice, I would say pro-abortion uh, candidate, uh, he's a pro-abortion extremist, uh, defending abortion through the entire nine months of pregnancy and even partial birth uh, abortion. Our duty as Christians to protect the innocent uh, certainly, in my mind, precludes our supporting a person who would subject innocent human beings to lethal violence uh, in the way that uh, that Doug Jones, the opponent of Roy Moore, is doing. On the other side, uh, it seems to me that the allegations that have been made by a number of women against Judge Moore are credible. I can't say with certainty that they're true. Uh, I don't know. Obviously, I wasn't uh, there. Uh, but the, uh, the allegations do, in many cases, seem quite credible. And Judge Moore's denials 
have in some cases been weak, and he seems in some uh, particulars to have contradicted himself. Now, the trouble there is, will Moore's election taint the pro-life movement, damaging that cause? If we as pro-life people uh, are willing to uh, support, even in these desperate circumstances, uh, with a terrible, terrible pro-abortion opponent, uh, someone uh, whose own uh, behavior uh, has involved deep uh, immorality and who may very well be lying about it. Uh, well, that could have a very bad effect on the credibility of the of the pro-life movement. Uh, so I don't think there's going to be a very good outcome one way or another here unless somehow Judge Moore uh, can show uh, that his denials have at least as much credibility uh, as uh, the allegations being made by uh, uh, women with whom uh, uh, he he claims not to have had relationships, but who claim to have had relationships with him. So it's a very uh, worrying uh, situation to me, and I I don't see a very good outcome uh, coming out of it. Dr. George, thank you so much for joining us on the on the podcast today. A few things that are, are resonating with me that I want to give some more time to thinking about um, and that I think uh, are important for our listeners to carry with them and then to pass on to those in their care and spheres of influence is the, is the reminder of Christian vocation in so many different spheres. Um, and that vocation being one of, of truth-seeking uh, and then articulating, defending, and being willing to uh, change in light of argument, in light of other convincing data and approaches, um, to seek the truth, to present the truth, and, and to um, be of such mind to pursue it so wholeheartedly, to be open to changing one's mind uh, with it. Uh, thank you so much for, for being with us, for sharing eloquently. Thank you for your, your ministry. Uh, it really is a, a service that you've given to the public and to the church as well, and what you've written and how you've articulated uh, good arguments and uh, done so in, in winsome ways and couched in a life that has been one of friendship and, and reaching across uh, ideological divides to, to have people in your life who are, are not of the same mind as you. As you. And I appreciate the, the way you've modeled that both in your writing and in your public life as well. So thank you so much for joining us today. How kind of you to say that, Aaron. Thank you very much. And it was an honor to be on the show. And we thank you listeners for tuning in. I hope that today's podcast has been resourceful for you. I hope it gives you things to think about and maybe a, a, a new author or two to explore and to be uh, become familiar with. We hope that you'll continue to access the resources of Wesley Seminary by following us on Twitter, by checking us out on Facebook. Thank you so much for joining in today and have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.